turn now with me to one who introduces himself in the last chapter of his first epistle as an elder. That is the Apostle Peter. He addresses elders as one who's also one of them. But here we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, and uh, we're continuing a, a series. This is the fifth and perhaps the last one for now on this series of unity within the body of Christ. And I'll read this scripture. Would you read, follow along with me um, in the translation you have at hand or in your bulletins? Peter writes, Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Thus far in God's word, let's turn to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word. And only your spirit can enable us to understand it properly and apply it in our lives. Only your spirit can give me the facility with words properly to explain and apply in our context what you intend for us. Would you touch my heart? Teach me. And as you have taught me this last week in preparation, would you also grant that you would use me in some way to impart some of that blessing of coming to know you better that comes from your word? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I uh, see books in the bookstore a lot that talk about destiny, you know, and uh, and coaches uh, for their team talking about a team of destiny. I even passed a church that was entitled the Church of Destiny. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I wonder how they mean that. And there's a sense in which it's true. But I wonder if they primarily focus just on the temporal advantages of health and wealth and success. Those things are not small. They're wonderful blessings. But they pass so quickly, don't they? And eternity is, after all, a very long time. Peter, as an apostle, tells us something of a destiny that begins now. You know, wait for it. Begins now and continues on into the ages upon the ages because it's found and centered in the person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the passage before us, we're taught that God has called his people both to be a blessing and to be blessed. I'll say that again. It's the sermon. If I can't say the sermon in a sentence, I don't really understand the text and ready to preach it. God has called his people, called his people, both to be a blessing and to to be blessed. Now, I want us to look at how and why that's so from the text before us. First, I want to note that our attitudes towards one another must reflect our unity in Christ. And second, that we must there also show compassionate humility. And finally, that, uh, and that our reactions to slights and injustice must be gracious, 
And finally, that our expectation, our expectation must be grounded in God's gracious calling. So let's look at each of those in turn, shall we? First, our attitudes toward one another must reflect our unity in Christ. Now, some have said you mustn't use the word must (laughs) because that's works, that's works, that's law. And I think to myself, well, as I read the word of God again and again, God through Moses, yes, but also God through the Lord Jesus Christ and God speaking in the scriptures through the apostles says must, must, must. The musts are there. They're based upon a prior declarative. And then we have the imperative. The declarative is, I'm your God and you're my people. And based upon that relationship of belonging to him through faith in Christ alone, we're his family and therefore there are some musts. Musts that are, first of all, a joy for us because we want to thank him with our lives. Because it's a joy for us, because we adore those things about God and we so want to reflect them in our lives because we admire them in him. You know, the one you admire most of all is your God, whatever it is that you admire most of all. That becomes your God. And the scripture says that when we make gods other than God, those who make them, their idols, will be like them. Be careful what you put in place of God. And if we really admire the God who is God, we want to reflect him to others. We want others to come to know him. See, our attitudes toward one another must reflect our unity in Christ. Verse 8, live in harmony. That word really means be of one mind a different term, but the same thought is used by the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, verse 2, when he says, being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Now, who? Who's supposed to be this way? He's just been talking about husbands and wives. Is it just couples? No. He says, finally, and that's, that doesn't mean he's summarizing the preceding immediate uh, text, but, but now he's taking the whole of what he's written, and he's coming to consummate it to this point. Now he's going to write another two chapters. So it's not, you know, finally, and this is done, but he's saying, finally, of all the things we've said so far, come to this point. And he says, all of you. All of you. To whom is he referring? He's referring to Jews who've come to know Jesus. He's referring to Gentiles who've come to know him because of those believing Jews' testimony. He's talking about those who hated the name of Jesus, who've come to love him because they've experienced that love of God through the lives of those that Jesus has touched. You see, the believing community really is, it's not just to be, it is a counterculture that God intends to be galvanized to stand together in the face of the world's derision and hostility. Now, we as Christians today may have some discrimination, especially in some parts of the country or in university campuses and classrooms. That may be, but seldom do we find open persecution of the type our brothers and sisters in Syria face today, as we've just heard. 
But you see, we're to be galvanized to stand together in the face of the world's derision and hostility. Now, of the terms that Peter uses in this verse, there are five of them. One is used only one other place in the whole New Testament. That's the term compassionate. Ephesians 4.32, uh, uh, Paul writes, be kind and compassionate to one another. Otherwise, that word for compassionate is not used anywhere else except here by Peter. And the other four words Peter uses are what scholars call hapax logomenai. That just means only used once. <laughs> only used once. Oh, well, that shows Peter didn't write it. Oh, come on doesn't either. You know what it shows? Because these are terms that are well known in the, in the extant literature from the day. You know what it shows? It shows that Peter's making a point that we're meant to stand out from the cultural background of our society at large and to do so as a mutually supporting and close-knit family, a church family, family of God. The covenant family is, is the bedrock of society, but also of the larger covenant community that is the church, which is the family of God. And some have lost their earthly family, sometimes for Christ's sake. And the scripture says God places the lonely, those lonely in families, his family. He gathers them together again, says, I love you. I want you to belong not only to me, but to one another once more. Your family. How do we do that? Peter says one way is we must learn to sympathize with one another. Verse 8, be sympathetic. Now, our word sympathy is derived directly from that Greek word. It's the very same word in Greek, sympathy. It means to feel pain or suffer together with someone. And, you know, it's, it can be used <clears throat> to uh, exalt with someone, but usually we think of that uh, in terms of going through pain alongside of someone. Sometimes you don't have words to say, and words can't say it, and you just, the presence, sitting beside someone with your hand on theirs, weeping with them. Paul says we need to weep with those who weep, and Rejoice with those who rejoice. You know, you really are beginning to be knit to each other as a family when you do that, as a church family. That's no less true. And we must demonstrate brotherly, and how I add sisterly love. That's where the, the NIV usually will add <laughs> a family love, familial love or something. Or what they're trying to say is that brotherly isn't just for men. And that's true. And I sympathize with, with that uh, important nuance that they're trying to bring out. But you lose something sometimes, as I mentioned last week, when you confuse explanation with translation. It's a hard, a hard line to to try to find, but, but the point is that this is brotherly love, love between brothers that are closely knit, who share the same family and family honor and family destiny. And this, as we do with brothers, it is sisters as well. And when the New Testament talks about brothers, it means brothers and sisters. It does. It's a cultural thing. It's a linguistic thing. 
It means we need to love our sisters, men. It means to love our brothers, ladies, in the family of God. And as we do that, as we do that, something unique and different begins to transform us. The Spirit of God will be at work among us. I remember, oh, years ago, maybe it still happens, but I remember you'd watch on television, uh, there'd be these NFL stadiums around the countries, and one after another would show their games, and the chant would come up, we are family. Perhaps you can remember that. I don't see it so much anymore, we are family. But that was a big thing at one time. The interesting thing was that uh, uh, their supposed unifying loyalty and team identity was shown to be somewhat superficial during the week. (laughs) Because in between games, it almost never factored into their business or other daily activities. See, it's only our identity in Christ by the work of God's Spirit in our hearts that's able to cause us to transcend all ethnic, cultural, socioeconomic, and other barriers to create a third race as the first century Romans began to call Christians. A third race. What do they mean by that? Well, there were the Romans, they were civilized. And then there were the non-Romans, considered barbarians by the Romans, just others. And now they're considered a third race. Other Romans said, well, there's the Romans, there's uh, pagans, there's our, that would, they would say ourselves, they were pagans, and then there are the Jews, and then there are these Christians who aren't either one. They're a third race. And either way you got there, Christians were a third kind. Are your neighbors having a close encounter with the third kind in you? We're to be different. Um, do we welcome diversity as a congregation within the God-given boundaries of God's word? It's not chaotic or or anarchic diversity. It is diversity within the kind that is the boundaries, Genesis chapter 1, that God as established and within that, there's wonderful plethora of diversity. God made the world to burst forth with diversity. One of the reasons is because it's infinite. And no one part of his creation can reflect back any more than an itty-bitty part of his glory. And the more of those you have from different directions and different perspectives, the more you have just a rainbow in a beautiful sense, in a noaic sense, a prism, a whole spectrum of light that together begins to give us something more of an approximation of the infinite that will ever escape us. And in all of this, we need to show compassionate humility. Verse 8, again, be compassionate. Uh, King James used to say something like, uh, bowels moved for you. And uh, we wouldn't say that today. It wouldn't have the same meaning. Uh, but that's what this is, to have good visceral response. Uh, we might translate it, our heart goes out to other people. 
You know, and when you see them just, you feel good inside. Or when you see them hurting, you feel that you want to do good inside you. You want to, you feel like you want to do something good for them. It's just there. It's in you. And then we're told we're to be completely humble. In Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, we read, For this is what the high and lofty one says, He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, we read, This is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. See, Jesus, when he begins his, uh, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, and he opens it up, you know, with that section we call the Beatitudes. Some call it the Beatitudes. These are the way our attitudes are to be. That's not bad, but, but Beatitude really means blessed. And, and here, uh, Makarios, blessed, Jesus says, nine times. Nine times. And in verse uh, 5, he says, blessed are the meek, the humble. For they will inherit the earth. That's not how it seems in our in our world, Adolf Hitler attempted to conquer the world. He was anything but humble. Most of the conquerors, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, doesn't matter. Genghis Khan, the one thing that didn't characterize them was humility. Jesus says none of them will succeed. None of them will inherit the earth. Who will? The humble. One like Christ's humility. We've already discussed in an earlier message the kind of humility Jesus showed. It wasn't doormat humility. It showed strength. It would take action decisively and strong to rebuke those who were hurting the innocent and helpless and especially who were keeping them from worshiping the living God. Humility, the humility that characterized Jesus was a mighty humility. We're to be humble like him. And then after the section called the Beatitudes, Jesus goes on in verse 13 to say, we're to be salt in the world. Just make things stand out, not be bland. It'll sting. It gives it flavor. It's something else. You can't salt salt. If it loses its savor, it's useless. Salt has to be salt to be salt, to be useful. And the next verse, he says, you're the light of the world. Light and darkness, it shines. You don't hide it. It's not meant to be hidden. Um, I've told a story uh, before, forgive me for repeating it, about uh, it really struck me when I was an ensign and learned it. Uh, I was a little careless on the bridge of a ship at night, and it was supposed to be a, a darkened ship status. And I, I had allowed, uh, I, I had not rebuked a, uh, 
a sailor, I was officer of the deck, I'm supposed to represent the captain and enforce the rules, and there's a sailor out on deck having a smoko. <laughs> He's out on the wing of the ship, you know, ocean around, he can flick that into the sea, nothing, harm, no harm done, right, wrong. Captain came on the bridge right about that time and uh, called me aside. <laughs> And rightly reminded me that it was darkened ship. I said, well, it was just an ember of a cigarette. <clears throat> and he said, in World War II, a Japanese submarine sank a U.S. Navy destroyer. At night, the only way they knew the destroyer was there was one of the sailors on that destroyer was smoking a cigarette. Well, my point isn't to light into cigarettes, pardon the pun. But my, my point this morning is that light penetrates darkness. It doesn't take much light to be seen for a very long way in a dark place. We, it's not just that we are to be light. Jesus says if you're a believer, you are light. Let your light shine. And then, it's interesting that uh, we're to consider, be considerate of others, as text says. Philippians 2, verse 3, Paul writes, In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Do we insist on our own tastes, styles, and preferences in our associations or in our worship? Or are we willing, within the governing guidelines of, that Scripture gives, to defer to others if that will most advance God's work among us and within our neighboring population. See, the one case, it's all about me. In the other case, it's all about the mission of God and my place within it. Oh, there's a difference. There's a difference, my friends. And that leads us to our second main point. Our reactions to slights or injustice must be gracious. Verse 9, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Romans 12, verse 14, Paul writes, bless those who persecute you. In Romans 12, verse 17, Paul goes on to say, do not repay anyone evil for evil. And both of those places echo, along with Peter, echo Jesus' own words. There's something in my blood, I might say, the, you know, the Viking heritage in me that is not instinctively kind to those who <laughs> do me wrong. Uh, it's not my nature, sinful nature. That's something that only the Spirit of God can overrule and teach me and grow me into a reflection of the Lord Jesus I have a grandson who's learning martial arts, been doing it for a year now, and he's got uh, a belt that's about two away from, uh, from, I guess, a black belt. and So he's getting along, you know, in that. He's a big kid for his age. Uh, when he gets uh, Pop Warner Football League, you know, anytime he touches the ball, it's a touchdown. It's not really fair. He runs over people. But there's a bully in his class that picks on him. And the bully is smaller than he is. And the bully doesn't know any martial arts. <laughs> and my grandson had really been working at that. 
because his parents had been coaching him about what it means. See, he's, he's learning that it takes more strength to return kindness to a bully than it does to retaliate. And he could. He could dump the kid on his head. He and his parents are praying for that young man. They're planning to invite him over to their home. They're praying for him to come to trust in Jesus. That's a small scale. You know, that's happening on a large scale, on a wide scale in Syria right now. It's happening in Iraq and in Iran and in Afghanistan. You know, next to to China, you know where the gospel is growing fastest, it's spreading fastest today? <laughs> Some of you know, I've told you. Otherwise, you'd never guess. Central Asia, try Iran and Afghanistan. You'd never have thought it. You don't read that in the news. That's where the gospel is penetrating. It's one of the reasons they're being hit by such persecution. Angry retaliation. Pray regularly for brothers and sisters of yours today who are there right now and facing that. But we're here. We have wonderful freedoms. The few people in the history of the world and any civilization have ever had where the church has seldom enjoyed four centuries of the kind of freedom for the gospel we have here. And we take it for granted. We think it's normal. It's not. It's an anomaly across the world and down through the centuries. 2,000 years of church uh, history of the expansion of the gospel. What we have to treasure is special, and we may not always have it. It's beginning to crumble around our ears. Time may come when what Peter wrote to the believers of his day to prepare for because it was coming and it did come, time may come when we or our children may face that in their generation. But you see, our expectation amidst it all must be grounded in God's gracious calling because it gives us hope. It's not stiff upper lip British uh, stoicism, you know. I'm not going to let any emotion pass. All right, well, that's... Too bad, I just lost another regiment. Stiff upper lip, you know. No, no, no. It's not that at all. We have an expectation and it's grounded in God's gracious calling. Verse 9, called. In 1 Peter 2, verse 9 and 10, Peter writes, and remember he's writing to Jews and Gentiles. I can demonstrate that if we had more time. I would because he says in, in chapter 4, you once lived like all the pagans. Now you're a third kind, a third race. And so it's Jews and Gentiles that he's writing to. And verse 9 of chapter 2, he writes, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. All of these are, are titles God gave to his covenant people from before the birth of Christ in what we call Old Testament days a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The God who calls light out of darkness 
has called you out of the darkness of the world and into his marvelous light. There's, there's a calling. Romans 8, verse 30, the Apostle Paul says, those he, God, predestined, those he also called, and those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. God's calling embraces everything before and after and will be complete. God has a complete and perfect package in mind for you if you're his child this morning, if you trust in him. He's not going to let you go. To the Philippians, Paul writes, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. See, we're called, but we're called to be a blessing, a blessing to others. Verse 9, Paul in our text says, uh, you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Don't, re, uh, don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but repay it with blessing. That's our missionary calling, brothers and sisters. Genesis 12, verse 3, God calling Abraham said, I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. You're not too. <laughs> He'll take care of that. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Ah, and Paul, Galatians 3, verse 29 says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. We're called not only to be a blessing, but finally to be blessed ourselves. Verse 9. For to this you were called, that you may inherit a blessing. What blessings? Well, there are a lot of them. They're covenant blessings. We'd say it begins with Abraham, but it doesn't. It begins in the garden as God speaks in front of Adam and Eve who've sinned against him, and he brings condemnation and judgment upon the serpent that has introduced um, the specter of sin into human existence, and God, through that, that utterance in Genesis 3.15, says, I'll, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head. You will bruise his heel. By the way, the word seed is never used of the woman. It's always of the man, except there. Except there. You see, God is saying that there's one who is coming who will redeem humanity from its lostness and who himself, at great cost to himself, will be victorious over the work of the devil. And so the promise begins there. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul tells us the, prom the uh, blessing began even before that, before God created the world. He chose, same word Peter uses, Paul uses, he chose, he elected his people to a relationship with himself in Jesus Christ. You are sandwiched in a Trinitarian hug. And he's not going to let you go. But, you know, the Beatitudes, when Jesus says, blessed are, blessed are, you know, he says it nine times in the opening verses of Matthew's gospel. Blessed, blessed, blessed. Some 
translations say happy, 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 and I see happy faces. It's not just happy, happy, happy. And there's a happy hour. This isn't that. To be blessed is so much more. It's God's conferring something upon someone. And when he does it, he makes it so. It's yours. It's an inheritance, we're told. Waiting for us, yes, but we have a foretaste of it right now by the Spirit of God working in our hearts. And so the Apostle Paul writes to Titus, Chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, and we read. Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope. What's that? The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. By the way, Jesus is God. This, the grammar of this puts that together. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, listen to these words, eager to do what is good. There are a lot of musts in this outline. (laughs) And you can't do them by yourself. And why are they there? Because God can do them. And he will do them through you. And you're involved. You don't just let go and let God, as a Keswickian uh, theology tried to tell us, you know, the, the less you try to do any effort, the more God just sort of flows, that's sort of a force flowing through you. It's not that. It's not that. It's work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, Paul writes to the Philippians, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God's at work in you. And Paul says, so I labor more than them all. He works at it. We're called to exert ourselves. There's an effort, but it's not an effort leaning on what we're able to do. It's always recognizing, Lord, I know this isn't enough. I know that doesn't, can't really by itself do anything. But I trust you to guide the hand of a child as he's writing his first letters and that the calligraphy that results will be not only readable, but special, and in the eyes of the parent, beautiful. It's what God wants from you. Athletes sacrifice very much in life in order to reach the Olympics and win a medal. Most never make it, and those who do, after 10 or 20 years, are usually forgotten. They look at their medal. What do they have? But how much more do we have a certain hope of God's promises and his presence both now and into eternity? But we have it because of what Christ has done. We have it because he was willing to 
take on human flesh without ceasing to be God. There was no disruption of the Trinity. There was no loss of the divine Son's divine nature when he took to himself a true body and a reasonable mind and soul, became man. So that he's God and man at once. And what one nature experiences, the person experiences. What the other nature experiences, the person experiences. And God did not die on the cross. Now, correct Sometimes our songs where we're careless about that, never does the Bible say God died. But Jesus died on the cross. His human nature died on the cross. He felt the separation in his human soul from God the Father because of his sin and could cry out using the the words of Psalm 16. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he bore the wrath of God a just and holy God upon the sins of the world of those whom he died to redeem. And he bore it all. And it's finished. When he cried from the cross, Tetelestai, it was not a whimper, Tetelestai, it's finished. (laughs) Glad that's over. No, no, no. It was a triumphant call. Tetelestai, and he dismisses his spirit. And the head, the the officer in charge of the execution squad who does it all the time says, Whoa, surely this was God's son. No ordinary death. It was finished. Your sins are finished. Yes, we come to God and confess regularly, but they've been dealt with. They are being dealt with. They will be dealt with because already... Paul says, we are seated with him in the heavenlies. So you're special, Christ community. You're Christ's community. And we can show it. What a privilege to be able to do that. To one another and in front of our community and to our community. Changed hearts, changed lives. Change community. Let's pray.